Good morning. This morning we are reading out of Habakkuk. We're in chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Verse 17, though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield, new fo- yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the reading of the Lord. One of the challenges of preaching when you're not the main preaching pastor is you have to pick a text. Mark picked a text four years ago and hasn't had to do it since. Uh, So... (laughs) I, I, we started Matthew when I had been here, I think, three weeks. Uh, so my, my understanding, Mark doesn't know there's any other books of the Bible. Uh, but the, I, as I was considering uh, this week where we should go to in God's Word, I was feeling pretty down and discouraged. At the point when I was considering it, I didn't know what the rest of the week would hold, but we were looking down the barrel of a pending war in Europe, At that time, it still seemed like this could never happen today. This is something that you read about in history books, not in newspapers. Well, since then, it's been in newspapers, not in history books. But even then, I was feeling the weight of what was going on in the world, the way that it felt out of control, the way that you feel conflicted. And I don't want to make particular political statements this morning, but I I don't think I'm alone and feeling the tension when you hear things like boots on the ground and not wanting that. And then you watch a news story of someone being evilly treated and wanting to stop it. And you feel the tension and you don't know what to do. And so you have this, this global conflict and crisis, this deep sorrow as I, as I watched a man about my age with a daughter who looked a lot like my daughter, weeping as he sent her away so he could fight to defend their country. I made it about 15 seconds through that video, and I didn't watch the rest. And as I thought about those things and the weight of them weighed on me, my mind continually went to Habakkuk. But apart from the global events that are happening Sorrow and strife and struggle are a part of our lives. Sickness, being sinned against, our own personal battle with sin that we feel like we fail and fall short so often, we are continually feeling the weight of the world on our, on our shoulders. 
From the very beginning, when man brought sin into the world through his rebellion, and the ultimate war began between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, sorrow and distress has been a part of human existence in this sin-cursed world. And so often that sorrow and distress and pain is beyond what I can control, beyond what I can handle, beyond what I can do anything about. I have as much chance of stopping the sorrow in the world as that lone person who runs out in the street to stop a battle tank. I am hopeless and lost. If that doesn't describe how you feel right now, you can just check out of the first 15 minutes of the sermon, get on your phone, and you'll be, you'll be depressed by the time you're done with that, and you can join with us for the end in the application. Because that is what it's like to live in the world, and we feel the sorrow, and we feel the pain. And Habakkuk is written in a time similar, a time where the pain and sorrow of the world, where evil is prospering. It's not a book that you often turn to, as evidenced by how long you were flipping pages before Mason could start reading. Uh, let's, let's just admit it. You had to look in the index. It's all right. Uh, it's, it's not a book we often go to, but I hope that after this morning it will become a book that you often go to because, because it is rich with encouragement for us. It's a book with an interesting structure. Uh, if you're using an ESV, you have the paragraph headings. I don't know what all the other Bibles say, but the ESV paragraph headings call them complaints. And that comes from chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. The words of Habakkuk to describe what he is saying to God here is complaining to God. We all have a tendency to complain to God and otherwise. We complain. And here, Habakkuk is complaining. It's structured in two complaints, two responses to the complaint, and then finally, a hymn of praise to the Lord. So let's look at Habakkuk's first complaint, chapter 1, verse number 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This book is written uh, near the end of the time of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel has probably already been taken captive uh, at this point because Babylon is a major feature in this book. And so we're at the end of the southern tribe, around 586 B.C. The prophets have not been well received in Israel. Uh, they have not been well received in Judah. They're constantly cast aside, sometimes killed, often persecuted. They're not listened to, and wickedness abounds within the nation of Israel. God's people offer uh, sacrifices, including up to their own children, to the false god Moloch, to the Baals, to Ashtaroth. They are trapped in a system that worships the creature rather than the creator. 
They look just like the nations around them, rather than distinctly like the people of God. And in that nation, this man Habakkuk, who is righteous, who wants to follow the Lord, looks around him, and he says, violence, iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, and contention describe his world. Within the people of God, this is what is going on at that time. Within Judah, these are the people that are representing Yahweh at this time. They're wicked, they're evil, they're violent, they worship false gods. And look at verse 4, how he responds. So the law is paralyzed. God's law is lame It is paralyzed. It is not dealing with the situation at hand. The evil that is found in the world, the evil which violates God's law, the evil that Deuteronomy would say should bring a curse, seems to not be cursed. These people prosper in spite of their wickedness so that Habakkuk feels like the very law of God is paralyzed. That justice never goes forth. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's how we feel. We look around, we see evil in the world, we see it prosper, we see it rewarded, we see it exalted, we are discouraged, we are frustrated, we are frightened, we are anxious, because the world we live in is not what we think it should be. And that's how Habakkuk feels. And so he complains to God, he prays to God. But even as he introduces his prayer, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? This is not the kind of language that we often use in prayer. If we got up and prayed in church and said, God, why aren't you listening to me? And then continued in prayer, you would all kind of raise your eyebrows at why uh, the pastor is praying like that. That seems blasphemous. That seems sacrilegious to say that God's not listening. Yet Habakkuk, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expresses his feeling that God is distant and absence, absent and not engaged. And he is distraught as the wicked around him prosper. But God is not distant. God is not unengaged. God is not absent. Let's look at God's response to Habakkuk's first complaint. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now that is a refrigerator verse. That's the kind of verse you, you paint pretty flowers around and you hang on your refrigerator because it's super encouraging that God is doing a mighty work. Now, the problem with refrigerator verses is you only put one verse on the refrigerator and you don't put the next verse on the refrigerator. So let's look at the freezer verse, the one that you don't want to put on the refrigerator. For behold... I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marcheth through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Right? So Habakkuk, Habakkuk is struggling. He's discouraged. He's frustrated. He's crying out to God. And what does God say? I'm doing something wonderful. He's like, oh, you're going to give me the wife I long for. 
Oh, you're going to give me the money that I need. You're going to give me the hope. You're going to make everything better. The sickness that I've been dealing with is going to go away. Everything is going to be great because God is doing a work in my days that I wouldn't believe if told. And God says, yes, I am. I am raising one of the most bloodthirsty empires in human history, and they are going to come and attack your nation. Doesn't seem like the answer that you would want in distress and discouragement. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Notice the parallel with verse 4. Justice goes forth perverted. God says that through the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. It is not the Lord's justice. It is their own justice. I will spare you the gory, gruesome details of the justice system of the Babylonians, but it involves some really nasty stuff. They were evil. They tortured their enemies. They were wicked. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. The Babylonians, their might is their God. They accomplish these mighty works as they go and they spread throughout all the land, spreading their empire, destroying everyone around them. Now, this sort of language is actually common in the ancient Near East where we find records of the things that God has done, or that the, the kings rather had done. Uh, kings would write down these accounts of their triumphs in battle. And they're often really blown out of proportion to make the king look good. Like he conquered thousands upon thousands and then uh, cut off all their heads and, built and mounted them up outside the city gates and so on. It's actually hard to do ancient Near Eastern, Eastern history because most of the sources that we have are these kings giving accounts of how great they are, which you can imagine are not the most reliable accounts because they're trying to prove how great they are. This is unique in that it follows some of those same uh, ways that those things are structured, but it's not Israel. It's not Judah talking about how great Judah is. It's Judah talking about how great its enemies are. This is God's prophet talking about the greatness of his enemies. They are great. They take over the earth, and they're doing so within the authority of God. He is raising them up to do that. And Habakkuk, who looks around him and sees wickedness, says, God, why are you absent? Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you listening? And God says, I am doing something. I'm getting more wickedness. And Habakkuk, you would think, would respond to this by being maybe not encouraged. This might not solve all of the problems that he has. And in fact, that's exactly what happens because we have Habakkuk's second complaint. God's first answer does not solve all of his problems. It does not answer all his questions, so he complains again. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. 
O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So he sees what's going on here. He sees, all right, the Chaldeans are coming in for judgment, but God, you're from, you're from everlasting. You're the covenant God. You've made promises to us. We can't surely die when these enemies come upon us. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? Remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. So here's what Habakkuk says in the first complaint. God, your people are wicked and nothing's happening. And God says, I know, so I'm going to send the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is like, no, not them. They're even more wicked than we are. How can they fix this problem? Why do you look idly at traitors? Remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. And there's some really powerful poetry in these next four verses. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So is he trying, what's he trying to emphasize about mankind? Is it how great they are, how wonderful and amazing they are? No, there's a lot of them and they're kind of useless, right? You make them like the, the fish of the sea and also you make them uh, like uh, a crawling thing that have no ruler. Not a term of affection that you might use with your spouse. Uh, you are a crawling thing with no ruler. Uh, probably not going to go well for you if you go there. He's making the point that these are not honorable. But what happens with the Babylonians, the Chaldeans? He brings all of them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and, glad, and is glad. So Babylon comes in and there's all these creatures of the sea all these little meaningless fish. And he just comes in with his net and he scoops them all up. And he rejoices and is glad. And then how does the Chaldean respond? How does Nebuchadnezzar respond to this? Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So Babylon is like this fisherman who catches all of the nations around him, who takes them to destroy them. And then when he has succeeded, he turns, and rather than worshiping the Lord who's doing a great work that, he can't, that Habakkuk can't even understand, he turns and he worships the net. How is this guy any better than Israel is? How does this give him hope? And so Habakkuk concludes, I will take my stand at my watch post Station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, what I will answer con concerning my complaint. So he's going to wait. He's going to listen to the Lord's response, and the Lord responds again. Verse number two of chapter two. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God says to Habakkuk, all right, I'm going to tell you something. And sometimes you're going to feel like the thing I'm promised, I've promised will happen is not happening. Just keep waiting. Keep being patient. I'm telling you, this is going to happen. Behold, his soul is puffed up, the Chaldeans. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So there is a contrast. The arrogant Nebuchadnezzar, who is puffed up, who is powerful, who thinks he is living forever, who thinks he is establishing an eternal kingdom, 
is contrasted with the righteous who lives by faith. The righteous who is trusting in the Lord as his hope, not in the power of the armies of Babylon, but in the power of the armies of the Lord, the righteous man trusts. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations, collects as his own all peoples. So Babylon continues. It's never satisfied. It's never satisfied. He's continually arrogant. He's continually proud. What's going to happen to Babylon? Verse number six, shall not these take up their taunt against them with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and now the Lord is going to pronounce four woes on the Chaldeans. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake you, awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. So we see in this first woe, he says, Babylon has taken, but Babylon will repay. Their debtors are going to rise up. The debt will come due. They can take from everyone, but eventually... They are going to repay the debt that they owed because he has plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples will plunder him. So there is this, this switch that's going to happen. Mighty Babylon, who has plundered everyone, will itself be plundered. And of course, this does happen. Babylon doesn't last for that long when you consider that when Daniel is taken in the exile, Babylon is the key power of the world. And when Daniel dies, Babylon is not the key power of the world. Like the lifetime of Daniel extends beyond the lifetime of the, emperor, of the empire of Babylon. And Daniel is taken captive by Babylon. And so we see that the plunderers become the plundered. The second woe, verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So Babylon has gotten evil gain for his house. He has set his nest on high. He thinks that he is safe and that he is protected but even when he thinks he is safe and protected, he has actually forfeited his life because the stone itself and the beam are actually going to respond to his wickedness. The things that he has built up as his defense will become his downfall. Verse number 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood, founds a city on iniquity, Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts, from the Lord of hosts, that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? So the idea there, that people labor merely for fire, the things that they accomplish are burnt up. So people will work hard, they will build, they will gain, they will build their, their town with blood, but it is from the Lord of hosts that that town burns up, that everything that they exhausted themselves for becomes nothing for the earth will be filled 
with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See that imagery there? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What part of the sea is not covered with water? By definition, if it's the sea, it's water. That's the point. Every centimeter of this world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And the kings of this earth can conspire and can build and can establish their little town made of blood and think that they're secure in their town and look on their works and praise themselves for their might as Nebuchadnezzar does. But ultimately, the whole world cries out to its king. The whole world will display the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So Nebuchadnezzar makes his enemies drunk and then stares on their shame and laughs at them. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Don't want to get too explicit on what that means? Ask your mom. She'll explain it to you. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. So as Nebuchadnezzar makes his enemies display their nakedness and shame, he will have his nakedness displayed and he will be ashamed. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Nebuchadnezzar, Chaldeans, you think you're so mighty that you can shame all your enemies? You yourselves will be shamed. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So he closes this this response by emphasizing the the woe that will come on those who worship idols. And it makes idolatry look so foolish. Its maker trusts in his own creation. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. It uses mockery and sarcasm to illustrate the folly of idolatry in this nation surrounding Israel, who God is in control of, who God is using for his purposes, will one day be made to look the fool. Now, we must be careful when we look to Old Testament prophecy like this and we try and apply it to our world. It would be inappropriate for us to just slide Russia into every reference to the Chaldeans, right? We don't get to decide who we think the bad guys are and think every prophecy about bad guys applies to them. That's not how the Bible works. But what we can see, whether it's talking about Russia or a loved one who is sinning against you, or your frustrations at work, what we can see from the biggest to the smallest things, 
Those things that seem most wicked and evil and completely chaotic and uncontrolled by the Lord are actually putty in his hands, and he is ordaining everything to happen the way he intends it to happen. And so as as Habakkuk could look at his people and say, why are you so wicked? When is God going to deal with this? And then when God deals with this, say, God, that that is not what I had in mind. He can look at that and nonetheless say that God is doing a great work beyond what we can even imagine in the world today. And that includes those things on the largest scale imaginable. That includes the churches that gathered this morning to worship the Lord in Ukraine at risk of life and limb to praise the Lord to ask for his help. That includes a church in Bakersfield that gathers and longs to see our community come to Christ. That includes you who has been sinned against this week by people around you. From the biggest to the smallest, there is this absolute control that our Lord has over his creation and over his world. And the mightiest things imaginable are putty in his hands. He takes those who shame others and he shames them. He takes those that build the giant cities to defend themselves, and he makes those cities themselves destroy them. Our God does whatever he pleases, and he works in his world for good and glory so that all mankind can look and say the whole earth is covered with the knowledge of his glory. And when Habakkuk is confronted with the reality of who God is, the reality of his power, let's look at his response. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. We are no longer talking about a complaint of Habakkuk the prophet. We're talking about a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And wrath, Remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence. Plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare, before, bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. 
I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs trembled beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. This is actually a historical account of things that God has done in the past in Israel. There's all these little references to the ways that God has conquered Israel's enemies. Let's, let's go through it a little bit line by line. Um, God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So we see just this all-encompassing glory. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. You have this sense of God controlling light itself, perhaps even lightning itself, as he is flashing his glory on the earth. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Almost like a dog following its master, the plague is to God. He has control over these things. Pestilence and plague goes where he desires he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So consider, he measures the earth. That's not something you do with a tape measure. That's, that's an expression of the greatness of God. It is hard to measure something bigger than you. God measures all of the earth. He scatters the mountains. He shakes the nations. He brings the hills low. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The surrounding nations fear the Lord. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, the bow, there's all this imagery of the power and might of of the Lord. The sun and moon stood still in their place. References to Joshua there, where God stops the sun and the air. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That ought to ring a few bells, maybe, crushing the head of the enemies of God. I might recall to mind Genesis 3.15 that he would crush, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. He threshes the nations in anger. He treats them as wheat. He pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. There are several accounts in the Bible where God's people go to war against their enemies and their enemies start fighting themselves because they're so afraid. We have this picture of God in control of everything. And Habakkuk can look back at the history of what God has done, the ways that God has established his rule amongst his people, the way that the nations surrounding Israel tremble, are weak as they see the king and his glory. And he responds with a trembling body, with lips quivering at the sound, rottenness in his bones, legs trembling beneath him. He has no strength to respond. He simply will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So it's not as if he understands exactly every step of God's plan, but he can sit and he can wait because the mighty God who has gone to war for his people will go to war for his people and he may look to be losing for a time, but he will never lose. 
Babylon can conquer Israel. They cannot conquer God. God's people may lose at times. They may suffer at times. They may face sorrow and disappointment and anguish. They may be discouraged and distraught and hopeless. They may even die, but God himself is undefeated. And he will remain undefeated. He has already conquered the greatest enemy. He has conquered death. And so as we look at the world around us, as we look at the sorrow that is present in this fallen, sin-cursed world, we can trust in a God who is great and mighty, who is powerful, who controls everything. And so we get to the closing section, the hope that we can have. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So this is a conditional statement. If these things happen, something else can happen. If there's no food, if there are no, if there's no sustenance, if we are starving to death, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. We can have confidence in the Lord. From the biggest to the smallest concerns. When you open up the news this afternoon, and we don't know what's happened, and it seems like things happen so fast in the world today, we don't know that perhaps in the 30 minutes or so I've been preaching that some world-changing tragedy has occurred. Wouldn't be surprising at this point in history, right? We don't know. And you open it and you find out the worst has happened, yet I will praise him. When we deal with the, the fear of our dollars not being worth as much as our dollars used to be worth, the pain of pumping gas at the gas station and knowing that like, man, eventually there's the, it goes up too high and I have to figure out what to do. And we struggle with just the little anxieties like that. Yet I will trust him. Yet I will rejoice in him, the Lord my strength. Yet I will take joy in the God of my salvation. When the people who you feel the most love and affection and loyalty to betray you and turn their back on you, yet I will rejoice in him. When you see the effects of sin and the lives of people you love and care about and you just want to call them to repent, to turn from their wickedness, and it's discouraging and heartbreaking, yet I will rejoice in him. He is the God of my salvation. The end has already been written. He will reign for eternity. His rule, his righteousness will be seen. He will make every knee bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. It will happen. It will happen. And it's not happening right now. And as we long and await that glorious day, yet I will rejoice 
So when you are discouraged and disheartened, look to the one who has provided salvation. Look to the one who has vanquished every earthly enemy he has ever needed to vanquish. Look to the one who has conquered death itself so that death has no sting, the grave has no victory. Our Lord is worth believing in. He is worth delighting in. He is worth rejoicing in and taking joy in and the worst situation we can find ourselves in because he has saved us. He will save us. He will conquer and rule with righteousness and justice that the greatest kingdom in the history of the world cannot rival. And we can rejoice in our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that when we are discouraged, that we would rejoice, not because our discouragement is not real, not because our world is not sorrowful and dark and oftentimes awful and discouraging, but that we would rejoice because we look to you and your greatness and your glory as you rule over your world, doing everything that you will. Pray that we would trust you and take joy in you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.